Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. In your bulletin, you see the uh, uh, usual title for the sermon and such like that. Just put a line through that today because I have a different one for you. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I, I worked on the one and had it ready for you today. And uh, I've had this sermon going through my head for four or five days now. And I said, you know what? I think I better just preach it to you. So I said, let's do that one. And, and I've got next week's Johnny Elijah's just going to have to endure that drought one more week. That's all there is to it. Uh, because uh, I'm going to need you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And that, toward the end of the chapter, uh, let's see, let's pick a verse. 25, how's that? Verse number 25. There's been a uh, small war going on this past week in the pastor's office. All those videos that that little camera recorded for us at our conference last week, um, was being put onto my laptop because that's one format and I need to edit it and take things out. And, and they were running for a lot longer than the session, so I was clipping off the fronts and clipping, clipping off the backs and all those kind of things. And then you have to take that whole pile of video and then run it through this system again because my camera would only record for about 50 minutes and then it shut off that recording and start another recording, and it'd give me another 50-minute clip, and then it'd shut off that and run me another 50-minute clip. So some of the services that we sat through, especially the guys who talked longer than others, uh, might have three different clips on that, too. And when I put it all on my computer, there was 128 gigabytes of material. And I said, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? And I had to go through all of those and clip all that off and such like that. And, and then I had to run it through. I call it the cooker. I put it in again to make it a MP4 file so we can work with it easier. And that was an amazingly long process. There were times when it would take three or four hours for one of them to go all the way through. And there were ten of these sessions to work through. So it was a lot of interesting things just sitting there watching it count real slow as it goes through. And I was thinking, well, this is going to be easy. It's all done. I do videos all the time for Dulas, so once that's done, I'll just pop it up on our website, and you guys would have it. Easy access, right? Well, a couple of things I found out. One is that when it was done in the cooker and produced a final thing, each of those was over one gigabyte of video data, which sounds like a, a lot has been reduced from 128 or so, but there was one gigabyte per each. Our website handles 250 megabytes. And it's like, that's kind of big. Uh, we, it didn't fit. I couldn't email it because I could only email 25 megabytes. And so I'm thinking, now what do I do? So I found all these different reducing programs and everything. I got it down to 23 gigabytes. 
And I said, well, that still doesn't fit. And I've been trying to stuff it into Dropbox for two days now. And uh, Dropbox is not happy with me. If you get anything in the paper about Dropbox and their people who customers and stuff, it probably is what I did to them. Um, but I've been trying to stuff it in there. Haven't succeeded yet, but I'm going to win this one. All right? And so we'll keep working on it. By the way, they are available. If you would like them, I could put them on CDs if you want. You can get it that way. If you want a flash drive, you could put it on there. Bring a big one, all right, but this big. And we could stuff it on there for you. But uh, there are different ways to get it to you. But we are working on how to get that available to those who want to get it from a distance as well. But that, that war has been going on. And the phrase I used often in my head was it was like trying to stuff an elephant through a little wire. And that's what it felt like at times. It was so huge, and, and it's going such a slow speed to get anything accomplished with that. An elephant through a little wire. The conference you had last week was an elephant. That was a lot of information. And some of you were real troopers and sat here through all of those things. You were listening to what would be some of the cutting-edge thoughts and writers that are working right now in dispensational thinking, these men, uh, students at, they were students at Tyndale, now they're graduated and they're out doing their ministries, but uh, um, they are among those that you're going to see their names a lot in print in the future um, with working with dispensational thinking. And I, I admire that and I'm very pleased to, to know these guys and to know their heart, their love for the Lord and their study for his word. But all that material was a lot of material. And how do you digest all that? That's a lot to know. That is an awful lot to know. I want to take you into a section today, and it sounds like I'm just switching topics, but really I'm not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, we're in a section of information that we know very well. It's what uh, Paul records as the Lord's statements on the night when he was betrayed and he took bread. Now, if you put this in perspective, it's, it's quite possible this is the first record of the communion service <laughs> because the Gospels were written later and Paul very likely wrote this book before the Gospels were written in the first place, quite possibly, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John recorded their Gospel that Corinthians was already a letter being written. And this is what Paul received from the Lord. You'll notice that in the phrase. This I received from the Lord, right? Uh, he didn't need to receive it from anybody else. The Lord told him directly what took place that night. He says, I delivered to you the night that Jesus was betrayed, verse 23. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, speaking of the bread, and said, this is my body, which is, for you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I want to focus especially on that verse, verse number 25, that phrase, New covenant in my blood. Blood. You know, just by saying that, a Jew who would have 
been fascinated with the Lord and enjoyed walking with the Lord, reading His Word, soaking it in, would have been so excited to have heard that phrase, the new covenant in my blood. That would have excited him to the highest degree. I want to show you why that would be the case today. Because it ought to make us excited too. Just that phrase by itself is a fascinating, fascinating phrase. Now, Jesus had mentioned in his ministry before about his body and his blood being eaten, being drunk. Back in John chapter 6, he had brought it up before. I want to show you how that went one day. Go back with me. Keep your place here somehow. And go back with me to John chapter number 6. I'm going to start with verse 48 here, please. Jesus, in the middle of his dialogue, the Jews were grumbling all around him, and he's speaking to them, and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread also which I give for I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began arguing with him or with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. Can you imagine how that stunned them? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also eats, will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now, that, that did not go over too well with the audience that day. They had trouble with this statement. It says in verse 59 and 60, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Then jump over to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It was too much for them. It was too much for them. Put yourself in their sandals for a little bit. Listen to those words again. Eats of my flesh. Drinks of my blood. He shall have eternal life. I raise him up on the last day. 
He will live. He will live. He will live. And they couldn't get over two words. Flesh, blood. They couldn't get over that. Now, it ought to have sparked their imagination. It ought to have excited their hearts. It ought to have made them the happiest people on the earth to hear such a thing. But there's a reason why it did not respond that way. Of course, you know when I mention something like New Covenant, you go to uh, Old Testament concepts to understand that. We talked a lot about covenants last week. But this one was at the end of the chain of covenants given in the Old Testament. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to take you back there just for a few minutes. Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a beautiful chapter. It covers an awful lot of material. This is a long chapter. There's 40 verses in this chapter talks about a variety of things of how much the Lord loves them, what He's done for them, how they've been uh, far off from Him, and how He would draw them back to Himself. There's a lot of things that it mentions about what He's going to do for them the day that they turn back and the day that they're back where they ought to be. But here in verse number 31 of that chapter, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant with which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You could understand what he's saying so far. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The Lord says, I'm making a covenant with my people, Israel, Judah. I'm going to make a covenant with them. I'm going to call it the new covenant because they're used to another covenant. They're not very good at it, by the way. I gave them this covenant back in the days when Moses took them up to Mount Sinai. There's a law code. There was a covenant that they, by the way, said, we will do. Everything you said, we will do. And that covenant was ratified that day, and they all agreed to follow it. But we know their history, don't we? Matter of fact, you see Jeremiah, you see uh, Exodus, and the number of pages between those in your Bible? They're testimonies, every single one of them, that they couldn't do it. Over and over and over. It is a very frustrating history to read, because of the number of times they broke that law. And the Lord says, I know it. I watched it day after day after day. You couldn't keep that covenant. You didn't make it, Israel. My covenant you broke. So verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. Watch what he says. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Now, they were told to write it on their own heart, <laughs> but they didn't do it. Matter of fact, they were told to write it everywhere, weren't they? Write it on their forehead, write it on your arm, write it on the doorpost of your house, just keep writing it. God says, no, they didn't do it. I'm going to write it on their heart. I'm going to write it on their heart. 
I'm going to put it there. And what else? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. That's an amazing statement. That's yet to be fulfilled. But it's an amazing statement of what the Lord will do. Notice there are no maybes, possibilities, maybes, could bees. There are I wills. I will, I will. The Lord will fulfill this perfectly. That day is coming. And then the end of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Wow. What does the Lord promise to them in this this simple picture? The change that He will make for them. Because they could not keep what He had given them the first place. They could not keep that law. Over 600 commands they were told to follow. That wasn't enough. They made up more. They lived by a law code. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Their sin was mounting up deeper and deeper. Their hearts became harder and harder. And then you add the pride that goes with that. For the one guy who might be able to fulfill some of those felt so much better than the guy who couldn't. And they started to evaluate each other based on man's perspective and man's ability. And they put so much man into it. It was scary. You know the picture. You've seen a Pharisee described in print before. The kind of person they became because they were so saturated with a law of the flesh and not the law of God. Their hearts were hard. Those are the folks Jesus is talking to in John 6. He's talking to them and they said, no, we want, we want nothing to do with that. We, we have our own system. By the way, the system doesn't work, Mr. Jew. It didn't save you. It didn't help you. Matter of fact, it condemned you. Remember what James would say about that? He who breaks one, does what? Breaks them all. That is their story. All the way through. That they were held accountable to this law with stony hearts and pride of flesh. You know what they were trying to do? They were trying to stuff an elephant through a wire. Or as Jesus said, a camel through the eye of a needle. How did it go? Worked well? No. What a mess. What a mess. Over and over and over. Here's Jeremiah. Picture Jeremiah. Just put on his sandals for a minute. What are you looking at when you're writing this book? You're looking at the end of a handful of generations that tried and tried and failed and failed, and generally they kept digressing. They kept sinning more and sinning more. And Jeremiah got high hopes when King Josiah took the throne. We talked about him just this past week too. He says, this is great. A godly man, finally a godly man on the throne. He's going to lead us into righteousness. And he was killed in a battle. In a battle. 
And Jeremiah's heart sank inside of him. He wrote about that. He couldn't believe that. That was his last hope. Because if you look at the history, just king after king after king was just as wicked as could be. Jeremiah got to record in print what it looked like to see the city burning to the ground. And the Babylonians took it. It's a book called Lamentations. That's his record. He says, oh, how my heart aches when I see that sight. That's Jeremiah writing these words. He knows how sinful mankind has become. It's been, it's been all around him. The whole path of the disobedient is set before him. How hard-hearted the people were. Every time he gave a message, he got in trouble for it. We call him a weeping prophet. How many times do we find him in a pit? Because he got in trouble with the king. He'd give him a message and the king would cut it up with a penknife and throw it in the fire. Go write it again, Jeremiah. Go write it again. He had a hard, hard ministry. Working with hard-hearted people. You, could you imagine his excitement as he's writing these words? As the Lord is giving it to him and saying, There's a day coming. There's a day coming when there will be a brand new heart in this person. A brand new heart because I, the Lord, am going to write my law on that heart. And they're going to know me. They're going to call me their God. I'm going to call them my people. And then, and then he says, I will forgive their iniquity. Wow! That is a stunning statement, folks. Because they had really mounted up a pile of it. They were living in it. There was a promise given here. And I could only imagine Jeremiah's joy as he's writing it down. Thinking, how exciting is this? Forgiveness of sin? Isn't that incredible? Wow! That's what he's writing as he, according to the words of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord Himself, will be the mediator of this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 brings it out specifically. It's the Lord who will be the mediator. He's the one who will bring it about. He's the one who could bring forgiveness. And how is He going to do that? Well, when the old covenant was made with Moses in his day, and the people said, surely we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do everything you tell us, Lord. And they promised to do it. It was ratified with blood. That day they sacrificed an animal. They took a basin of the blood. Moses took up right in front of the people, and he dipped his, his hyssop, whatever it was, in that, in that blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. To ratify the covenant. Sprinkled them with the blood of that animal. You say, well, well, outside of messing up everybody's laundry, what was the purpose of that? Because God made it very clear. Right from the beginning. What was the penalty for a soul that sins? Death. Soul that sins shall die. And then he established the sacrifice system. And what was to take place? In the sacrifice, an animal died. 
you shed its blood. Because life was in the blood. And they would shed that animal, the blood, so that it would be placed before the Lord. As Does it clean them all off? Does it erase all sin? No, it does not. It was speaking of something greater to come. They didn't know that, but it wasn't sufficient. The blood of an animal was never sufficient. Blood of bulls and goats, they weren't enough to forgive sin. But it was what the Lord told them to do. How many animals died in the Old Testament? Imagine that. I can't even give you a number. How many animals died because we're sinful people? God kept saying, this is what I want. I want blood. I want blood. I want blood. When he came to the new covenant time, he says, it's going to be ratified by blood too. There's going to be a mediator who's going to stand in that gap. He's going to represent man and he's going to represent God and do it perfectly from both ends. And that's how he is going to bring forgiveness. Through his blood. Through his blood. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. What did he say in that room that night when he had the cup in his hand? This is the new covenant in my blood. He was paying the price for what God has wanted to do. To write him his word on their heart to be their God to forgive their sins. Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The only one who can do that. Ratifies this covenant with his blood. This promise that God said he will save them. There's a song that's not in our hymn book. It's in hymn books I remember from years past. Older ones, and I don't know what the committee does when they get together and put together a new hymn book and say, well, this one doesn't go anymore. And I don't understand that because always the ones they say, this one doesn't go anymore is the ones I liked. And they're left out of the book. But James Gray wrote a song. James Gray was the president way back at the early days of Moody Bible Institute. He was a theologian. He was uh, well-versed in Scripture. And he wrote a song called Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One. My sins are our pardon. My guilt is all gone. You know what? When I get to the chorus on that, it's such an exciting song. And maybe you've sung it before. I'm thinking, we've got to resurrect that one somehow. But the song, it leads through all the things that God has done to save us. And he gets to the chorus and he says, Saved! Saved! My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Can you imagine somebody with that excitement? Running down the street has to tell somebody... Isn't it exciting to be forgiven? I picture this Jew. Imagine him standing right over here. This Jew who has tried his whole life to stop the elephant through the wire. He's saying, I can't do it. I break the law. I skin an animal. I cut it up. I take in his blood. All these things. We go through the sacrifice over and over and over again. I no longer start to walk home from the temple I'm two blocks away, and I blow it again. I might as well buy a room right there at the Motel 6 next door. Because I need to be here every day. Because if sin takes a sacrifice, I'm going to be doing that all the time. 
And that poor man sitting there. And then all the pressures of his society around him. And how they slowly walking away from the Lord and bringing up idolatry and all these other things. One wicked king, another wicked king, another wicked king. Live under that for a while and feel the oppression of sin. No hope. What do I do? How do I get out of here? Is there anything that's ever going to change? Or are we just going to end with a whimper and a sigh and it's done? And Jeremiah starts to write. There's forgiveness coming, folks. There's forgiveness coming. A new covenant where you will be forgiven. I can imagine this guy jumping up and running down the street. Saved! My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Can you sense that? In the words that Jeremiah writes, how exciting that is. Now on the other side, you've got the poor Gentile. Have you ever thought about him? He's sitting here on the other side watching this Jew. He says, wow, I'm glad I'm not under that law. This guy's miserable. He can't do it. But you know what? I can't do it either. I don't even have a law. Not like that. But I have a conscience, and it is eating me up. Every day it weighs heavier on me. Because I don't have a way. I don't have a sacrifice to bring. I don't have a law to read. I don't have a temple to go to to talk to that God who can forgive me. I'm sitting here in my conscience, and I'm as sinful and as guilty as anybody else on this planet. And I don't have a way. I don't have an answer. I don't know what to do. Scripture would say it very well. This man has no hope. He has no hope. And as he sits, could you imagine it? If somebody walked up to him and said, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be saved your sins are all pardoned and your guilt is all gone. You can be that too. You can be forgiven. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, that man sitting there in Ephesus one day when Paul came to town. Do you know what Paul told him? It's recorded in Ephesus chapter number 1. Ephesians, not Ephesus. Ephesians chapter number 1. This is what these men heard. These Gentiles sitting around and hoping there's got to be a way for us. And Paul starts to write to them, and he says this in verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this man suddenly says, Me too! See it? Me too! I can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiven. 
And then Peter picks up his pen and he starts to write. Go over there with me to Peter. First Peter chapter number 1. And Peter writes to this man and he says, right in the start of the very first chapter, First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. They're scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you. You say, wow, this is for me? This is for me? This Gentile looking at the Jews? You've got a law. You've got a temple. You've got a sacrifice system. But you're miserable. You're miserable because of your sin. I don't have any of that. And I'm miserable because of my sin. And it's interesting, when it boils down, all these people and all these camps and all these thoughts, they have the same problem. You can be a dispensationalist, a Calvinist, or any other kind of ism you want to be. But you have a problem. And it's called sin. And you could sit on one side of a platform or another side of the platform and say, that guy has it better than me. But you still have sin. And you need a Savior. And we have one who shed His blood for our forgiveness. For our forgiveness. Because so many times you think, what does it need? What do I need to do? How do I do this? What do it what what can I do? What can I do? Chapter one of Peter, you haven't left, I hope. Look at verse fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. For like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior. And they say, but we tried. Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Yes, we know, we tried. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. We're trying. But know this, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver, like gold, anything from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. That will not save you, regardless. But, verse 19, with what? Precious blood. Whose blood? The blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. I think about these folks. Finally, when the light bulb clicks on and you say, oh, that's what it was all about. The Jew who will finally someday hear those words and understand them. And suddenly they say, 
I can be forgiven. <laughs> How exciting that's going to be. Wait till we're watching it. We're going to sit up there. I don't know, are we going to laugh or cry or what? When we see that fulfilled. But it's going to happen. And they're going to say, my sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. And you're going to see the Gentile too. The Gentile who finally the light comes on and he says, oh, that's what it was all about. I couldn't do it in any other way. But Jesus did it for me. He paid the price. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Because I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. All of us are right there, aren't we? That's exactly our standing before him. For all that he has done, if you bring it down, if it can, to one thought. One thought. I'm not arguing about seven or nine or twelve dispensations. I just say, bring it down to one thought. We need Christ. We need Christ because he is the one who said, I am the way and I am the truth. And I am the light, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's it. And how did he bring that about? He died on a cross, and he shed his blood. He says, that's where forgiveness comes from. How appropriate that he would take that cup that night. And he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Now, I don't plan to gain a whole lot from the New Covenant myself personally. I'm a Gentile. And that's a fulfillment for the Jews. But I sure like the forgiveness part that spills over to me. I sure like the fact that His blood was sufficient for all of us. And that's what He did. He died for us. He shed His blood for us so that we can have forgiveness. It doesn't matter if one's a Jew or one's a Gentile. It doesn't matter. Because there's no way to come to the Father. No man, no Jew, no Gentile comes to the Father but through Him. Only through Him. And only through His blood. I've thought a lot about that the last few days. We have a communion service, which I think is quite appropriate today. But i thought a lot about this very simple thing. Because we can get so technical, I know. We can get very complicated. Theology does that. You start digging and dig deeper, and you dig deeper, and you dig deeper. And you get bigger words and bigger words to cover all these things you're tr- trying to say. It's an amazing field to study. But when it comes down to it, it comes down to Jesus. And that's where we stand today. We stand at the foot of a cross. We remember what he's done for us. He gave his, his body to be broken. He gave his blood to be shed so that we might be forgiven that we might, through faith in Him, have eternal life. That we might know what it's like to be belong to the Father. To call Him my God. For Him to call me His child. To have such a relationship that He even has an inheritance waiting. There's a future there. There's a hope there. There's so much more. But just to have Christ is wonderful, isn't it? It's wonderful. And today, when we partake together, we're going to take of that bread, and it's just a reminder of a body broken. And we're going to take of a cup, and it's just a reminder again of the blood that was shed. 
And I wonder when we read these words again and hear these words about how that is wrapped up in our forgiveness, if we're not ready to start shouting, my sins are all pardoned, my guilt is all gone, I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Heavenly Father, what a great thing you have done for us. How amazing it is that you should love us so, that you would give your Son, that we, the undeserving, might have forgiveness. That we might have forgiveness. Lord, there's many people in this room today. You know every single heart here today. But if there's one person, just one person, who doesn't know you as Savior, draw them to them, draw them to yourself right now. They need a Savior. And we have a Savior. And He's, he's great. He is, he is the best. And we bring Him in the forefront today that they might see Him and know why He died. Why He shed His blood for them. Because our Father loves us so much. He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. May that be true for somebody for the first time today, we pray. And for all of us who know you well, may we be very thankful for what you have done. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.